Hi, welcome back to AR Zone. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. These continuing interviews on intersectional veganism and related issues are in association with VegFest UK. In today's interview, Roger and I are very excited to welcome our special guest, Dr. Kim Sosha. Kim holds a PhD in English and teaches writing and literature at a community college. Her publications include Animal Liberation and Atheism and Women, Destruction and the Avant-Garde. She's also contributing editor of Defining Critical Animal Studies, an intersectional social justice approach for liberation and confronting animal exploitation, grassroots essays on liberation and veganism. Kim frequently publishes articles and chapters on intersectional social justice, and her work has been translated into German and Spanish. She's regularly invited to speak on her scholarship and activism. As an activist, Kim organises with Minnesota Animal Liberation and Progress for Science. She also volunteer teaches English to immigrants and refugees from Africa and Central America. Kim, it's a pleasure to welcome you to our special series on intersectionality. Thank you for having me back. You're very welcome. Kim, there are still a number of important isms to be tackled within and also without of the animal movement. Ableist language remains a particular problem. However, you wanted to emphasise the issue of ageism. Can you outline your concerns on that, please? Yes, my interest in ageism as another intersection or another issue that needs attention in the animal rights movement occurred when I was giving a talk at the Collective Liberation Conference in 2015, and my talk was on uh, ableism and ageism. And the two are not perfect bedfellows, but some of the commentary I found myself making about one seem to really apply to the other. And in terms of looking at someone and assessing immediately what you think they're capable of or not capable of uh, based on physical ability or based on age. So there's that basic connection that one might make. But what I found out is the response that I was getting was more so to I suppose we'll call it the, although I'm not the, I don't want to say that I'm the first person to acknowledge ageism in the animal rights movement, but I had a number of people, um, not surprisingly, women uh, mainly over the age of 50 or so saying, thank you, I'm glad you talked about this issue because I often feel that pushed back within the animal rights movement. And it's certainly not just women who uh, experience it anywhere, but it is more so of an issue for women. So that's why I wanted to look specifically um, at how ageism manifests in the movement. Kim, I think it's really interesting that you speak about women and the fact that women can experience it more or even earlier than men do. I think it was your VegFest talk in which you mentioned that between the ages of 40 to 60, men are seen to be in their prime and at their peak, whereas women in that same age group are seen to be basically invisible. Some outside research I did, not specifically related to the animal rights movement, noted that in the United States workforce, ageism can, women can start to experience ageism as early as 35, while men might have 
at least another decade or a decade and a half to two decades until they will mm. start experiencing that. And you use the term invisible. So every time I, I, I give a talk or write about ageism, I like to give a shout out to a woman named Charlotte Cosetto, who is the president of the Animal Rights Coalition in Minneapolis, which is where I'm based. And she uh, made a comment years ago, maybe eight years ago, and it stuck with me. And she and it was right when I was 35 and, and when um, that that time when women start to experience ageism. And I remember her saying to me, uh, she seemed to be she wasn't uh, railing against it, but just making an observation that she feels invisible, even though she has 30 years of experience, strong, deep roots in our community, has an amazing history, has done so much work uh, for other species. And as she run, uh, helps to run this organization uh, as the president with, with employees, she has noted that as uh, what she said to me is, as you get older, and she's like, you're going to experience this, you will start to feel invisible. And it's as if it's this inevitable thing. And I've come to, I haven't, I've had my experiences with it uh, here and there. But uh, that really stuck with me because it's the first time really maybe anyone even brought ageism to my attention. And I kind of was puzzled, though I, I wasn't nearly as much aware of or um, honestly even interested in at that time, intersectionality. Uh, but it seemed really like it didn't make sense. Well, if our whole purpose really is to make the lives of other species visible to people, their lived realities why are we making others invisible? As I got more into scholarship and more into the movement and began to understand what interse intersectionality is, I saw the same things happening with uh, people who are uh, other people who are marginalized as well. So it seemed a uh, and especially there's a, a personal uh, connection. I am a human who's getting older, as we all are. Yeah. So it seemed like something that um, needed some more attention. Well, I agree with you, and I think it's wonderful. I enjoyed your VegFest talk, and I think that what you're yeah. talking about and what you're raising awareness about is incredibly important. So thank, thank you. So, hi, Kim. Uh, Roger here. I hope you're doing okay. Yes, very well. Yes, thank very you. Very well, thank you. Uh, good, good. And so you've you've already touched on uh, one of the points that I wanted to raise first with you. So I'll see if I can get you to elaborate a little bit. Um, you suggested that one function of ageism in a social movement setting and beyond that is to this thing about invisibilizing people, as you've just stated. And um, as well as facing a very kind of strong philosophical opposition in the in the animal movement, I think this invisibilization thing definitely happened to Tom Reagan. In the in the last twenty years, I, I know very few people who actually know his work, which is a, a tragedy, you know. So, as you noted earlier, this is a gendered uh, issue in the main, but you also think it affects all persons. Oh, absolutely. Over I've seen it. Yes, I've seen it firsthand affect men and women. Yeah, I, one concern of mine is that people don't seem to know the history of their own movement. So, do you think that ageism plays a role in actually blocking that learning, if you like? Well, I, absolutely. And I have a, a, a good example, again, going back to uh, the story I just told about the president of, of the Animal Rights Coalition. Uh, 
you know, getting to this idea, if we don't talk to people who have come before us, even if they've decided to after years, and not because uh, maybe they aren't able to take to the streets uh, or whatnot, because, you know, they've tried different tactics and they've moved on to new ones. I, uh, as part of the book project that Carolyn had mentioned in my introduction, uh, my co-editor, Sarah Jane Blum, and I did a, an oral history of the Animal Rights Coalition, and we spoke to four women in particular. Uh, one is a woman named Vonnie Thomasberg, who who died within the last four years. I'm, I, I really feel honored to have spoken to her. You know, we kept the recording. And if we had, it was actually Sarah Jane's idea as a historian, if we had not said, well, why don't we include this in the book? Uh, if we had, if we had looked just at the immediate people with whom we were doing our day-to-day activism, uh, it would have just been people who look exactly the way we do. Um, and in some ways, you know, there was a lack of diversity in the book, but by doing this oral history, uh, we learned of this of this whole background to not just the local Minneapolis scene, but to the world or to at least to the U.S., to this um, to what it was like to be part of this movement as it was growing in the or blossoming in the 70s and the 80s. So I think that we are not a unique case. There have to be communities all over the world where people, by invisibilizing, for lack of a better word, uh, people um, who they deem as unhip or uncool or not in touch with what's happening in the world now, they are losing out on the history. With that comes inspiration for what we can do next, strategies for what to do, cautions for what not to do. So I think that we are doing ourselves a disservice by ignoring those who have that long history and even possibly by ignoring those who might have a different history but are coming into the movement. For example, I mentioned Bonnie Thomasberg. She did not start, she did not become an animal rights activist until she was 50 years old and had raised her children. And I've heard stories. I, I heard stories that she was treated terribly. I mean, she stuck in there for the animals, but she was treated terribly because, uh, and this is a perception of someone else, but it seems via, uh, believable because of her age and because of her gender. She was regularly ignored, and this would have been in the in the 90s that this happened, but she really stuck with it and um at the end of her life, had a, a beautiful story to tell. Yeah, yeah. Thank, thanks for that, Sir Kim. Kim, I think young people can also experience ageism. For example, yes, yeah, yeah. Um, young people are often accorded less respect and are stereotyped a lot of the time, particularly in my experience, teenage males. My son, for example, has certainly experienced this. Is this an aspect of ageism that you think is often overlooked? Yes, so much so that I didn't even bring it up yet. So I'm glad you did. Um, and, and I really want to stress that I, I mentioned it uh, very briefly at uh, my, my my talk at the uh, pro-intersectional conference at the UK Veg Fest. And I did note it as something that it, it is an issue. Um, and it usually seems like it is either people who are deemed as 
too young to know what they're doing or too old to know what's relevant anymore. And then there's all these, this meaty area, you know, pardon the expression, um, where (laughs) we are, we know exactly what we're doing, Mm. uh, which really no one knows exactly what they're doing. We're, We're all trying a variety of different things. And I, I mean, and I will be honest in that I've also, as much as one can be guilty, uh, I've been guilty of ageism in the sense of dis. I've become much more aware of it, of discounting people because of their um, they're older than me and discounting youth who I've I came into contact with at uh, organizing meetings because really having this perception of. Well, what are they, you know, what do they have to bring to the table? Um, oh, they're so naive, you know, the, and also being a teacher who my, my, the general would be like first year uh, university level students, uh, many times teens, let's say, I'm used to being the teacher. So I have to get myself out of teacher mode in certain contexts. Um, but I've also been... Uh, wrong <laughs> in my perception that that youth don't have um, or especially teens it's usually you'll hear like okay this is a youth movement but that seems to start in the really late teens or the early 20s and then there's let's say what we would call in the U.S. like high school age students and uh, I had again an experience where I my some fellow activists and I were organizing a campaign against a local um, a vivisector from the University of Minnesota who does really painful uh, drug testing um, like cocaine, methamphetamine on primates, rats and mice. And this um, young woman, uh, Gwen, uh, she was a teenager at the time, had a brilliant idea for a campaign where recovered or recovering addicts and people affected by addiction would create videos. And the campaign was called No Pain in My Name, in which we're saying, okay, if you're doing this this research supposedly to help people like us, well, we are saying we don't want you to. We don't want you to hurt animals to try to help us. And this came from someone, I don't know her personal background, but this was her idea and here's an example of if we, if, if I or we or the group had shut her out because of her age, because she's young, she can't know she's green, we would have lost out on some uh, really impactful and, and powerful moments. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kim. Yeah. Um, so I just want to um, change the tack a bit um, now, Kim, uh, for this last question of mine. And um, it's about your talk at VegFest, the Pro Intersectionality Conference in uh, 2016. And you spoke about the uh, social construction of normal and attractive. You suggested that, yeah, the, yes. yeah, that the emphasis is on pandering to those notions uh, in the animal movement, and that's led it to target particular types of people. And essentially, the movement has focused pretty much uncritically on what the mainstream says is normal and attractive. So my question is this. Would you say that we alienate our natural allies in other social justice movements with such an apparent counter-revolutionary emphasis? I do. I do believe so. We come across as, you know, I I hate naming names, but we all, you know, the the big organizations that promote this. I mean, I'm specifically, you know, I I have to say, I really think PETA does a lot of good work. I, I really do. But that insistence on, you know, and then, um, 
you know, we have, I, I mentioned specifically the author Nick Cooney saying you should put your most attractive people out there, uh, but never, yeah, n- never explaining, well, oh, who's attractive? We all, you know, he's, there's an assumption of who's, who's attractive. And when we look at other social justice movements, you know, there, I want to look at the, you know, I want us to consider there is a unique element in that we are, of the spectrum of oppressions, we are the only group that is speaking for another species. All others are human based. So there, so there are those differences. You know, people, um, and, and I've, you know, at, at a Black Lives Matter protest or uh, LGBTQ event are not, the, at least as far as I know, and, and I've done support work and, and, and organizing um, with many different movements, these questions don't ever come up. I've never heard it, seen it, or read about it, like put your most attractive person of color on the front lines, put your most attractive trans woman on the front lines. It just doesn't come up. And I think what winds up happening is when the animal rights movement is perceived as just another product that is for sale, um, you know, borrowing from the commercial landscape, what winds up happening is that we aren't taking taken seriously. We don't seem like a diverse collective group of people. And I think um, along those lines, another form of invisibilizing, I think, uh, that really frustrates me is I, I also think sometimes we ne- we definitely need to address the, you know, what they call the animal rights movement rather than animal rights. But I also think when so much emphasis by vegan activists is put on that this is a, a, a white movement, it completely erases the people of color who are in the movement. It's telling them that they don't exist. And I, I think there's a danger of, of further erasing by emphasizing that. And I think the emphasis gets so extreme that what winds up happening is, again, the, the products that these organizations develop from pamphlets and websites, they think, oh, it's a white movement. And we did a demographic study and, you know, young white college age women are the most likely to go vegan. So we're going to ignore any other potential uh, person because we don't think they're going to listen and all we care about is numbers. And I think that kind of mentality completely erases the the truth. I mean, it's not even, oh, I saw it happen over there. I regularly protest with uh, really diverse. I don't know if I'm just lucky because um, I'll tell you, Minnesota is not known for being a diverse state but with a really diverse group of people in terms of age and uh, gender and race. So when activists themselves are perpetuating the idea that this is a white movement, I think there's that, that there's potential danger there and really very little hope for any coalition building. Not just being intersectional in that we're inclusive, but intersectional in that we actually do work with and for other social justice causes. Kim, I couldn't Kim, agree, I couldn't more agree more with what Good, you just said. Good, thank you. Yeah. 
it uh, uh, frustrates me so much. <laughs> it's, it's beyond frustrating. I think in regard to what you've just said, which I think is, is just so incredibly important, I want to ask you what we as people who are trying to change the movement from being an animal rights movement and a, a mostly male-led animal rights movement, what we can do to make actual changes because we we have i know you mentioned the biggest animal advocacy conference that i know of around right. the world is coming up soon in the u.s and when we have speakers at that conference rejected for example we we had a um a woman of color who applied to speak at the conference on issues of intersectionality was rejected but we have white males Welcome oh. to speak at the conference on reducitarianism, oh. which has absolutely <laughs> nothing to do with a so-called animal rights conference. Firstly, what do we make of that? And gosh, I could go on forever <laughs> about that. But I guess more importantly, what do we do about that? How do we change the mindset of the organisers of a conference like this and the people who support the organisers of a conference like this? Well, um, very, I mean, specifically about the AR conference, and I will say I spoke there once in 2015. Um, I, you know, I put in a proposal and I think, I think I probably would have been rejected, uh, but there was a contingent. I didn't ask them to do it. I swear there was a contingent of people who were like, we want Kim to talk about atheism because it's, this is a secular movement. And I'm not saying that's why my proposal got accepted, but I think it had a lot to do with it. But I think otherwise they would have said, you know, we don't we don't want to seem, you know, different or weird or atheism, even though most of us are not religious anyway. That's going to seem too weird and out there. And we don't want to take focus away and on and on. So I really think um, for that specific conference, it would take a people demanding and demanding that there be a more diverse uh, group of speakers. And, and honestly, I at that particular conference, there were, this is maybe the first year ever that there, that I don't know what's happened in the past, well, it just would have been one year, and now they have 2017. There were panels on intersectionality and some great speakers who I think should should speak and continue to speak, but they were not. Now, there were people of color there, but if I'm remembering correctly, the majority of people who were speaking on intersectionality were not people of color to the point right. that, um, again, I won't name names, but I thought it was very good that a woman of color who was speaking there demanded. She she was she had her own work. She had enough work to do, but she's like some we I need to speak on this panel. Because you have a majority, uh, in this case, it would have been, you know, white women talking about intersectionality. And it's not that they don't have anything to say, but I'm here and my voice should be mm. heard. So in that particular case, specifically, I think people who attend it have to say, I, I, I'm tired of the same speakers year after year. I, I'm demanding this or I'm not going. I think a petition or I'm, I'm not huge on petitions, but something like that. I think they would respond simply because they want people to go to the conference. I think the reason they hesitate is that fear 
that the and I really believe it's unfounded or I wouldn't do this kind of work uh, that fear that the focus will be taken taken away from animals, but not thinking that by maintaining that fear, they are being exclusionary and cloistering themselves against the real world that we live in. Um, in a broader way, I really, you know, we all have limited time of what we can do and where we can do it. So I, I, I say this with that in mind. And if you have only a few hours a day or a few hours a week to do social justice work, sometimes you have to pick and choose and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on animal rights issues only. I'd say, okay, but look at how you're not being inclusive, possibly how maybe you're not being inclusive in your wording in your rhetoric, in rhetoric, not just being verbal, but in any kind of like written rhetoric. And the, the other thing, if it's possible, is please, please, please dedicate some time to other social justice movements, whatever moves you. I, I have and I continue to do it. And I will say it's not always comfortable um, and, you know, I, I can only speak from my place in the world. I have done work organizing um, for issues of, you know, racial justice. And it is it's it's complicated and you mess up and sometimes you don't mess up, though. So I'd say rather than just saying we should be intersectional, which we should say um, and then think about how that works in the animal rights movement. If you have that ability and that time, please look at how you can be active in another movement as well. Uh, and not just to get, you know, um, you know, your card punched to say, oh, yeah, I marched in a Black Lives Matter protest. So I'm, I'm done for the year or something like that. But to really say, am I willing not just to say, yeah, I think interpressions and, you know, oppressions are linked but to actually move into those spaces where you're not the dominant voice. I wrote in a, a blog article I'd be happy to share with both of you. Um, it's called Show Up and Shut Up, um, which is a little brash, but I wanted to get people's attention. And it's called, uh, it, it's about how animal rights activists can show up for other movements and it talks about what I've learned, what I've done right, what I've done wrong, what I'd like to see happen in the future. Um, I think until people see animal rights activists acting for other movements, then we will, in different ways and for different reasons, remain cloistered and, and divorced from other potential allies. Um Kim, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you very much for spending your time with us today, but I'd also like to take the opportunity to thank you for everything that you have been and continue to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. Well, I I really do feel the same way. Thank you. It, it's been a while since I've been on, um, and I, I thank you for everything you're doing. You know, I hope to be on again at some point, and I, I continue to follow um, uh, what you're doing online and Here's to keeping, here's to keep going, keeping on. Absolutely. Thanks again, Kim. Yeah, thanks, oh, Kim. Okay. You take care now. Okay, thank you both so much. And thank you.